welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is our 421st show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Meredith McCarroll, Director of Writing and Rhetoric at Bowdoin College. And we're going to be talking about Appalachian Reckoning, a region responds to hillbilly elegy. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Faruk Danaran. And today we'll be talking about Appalachian Reckoning, a Region Responds Hillbilly Elegy by Dr. Meredith McCarroll, Director of Writing and Rhetoric at Bowden College. Welcome to the show, Meredith. Thanks so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, can you start us off by giving us, our listeners, some kind of intro about what is Hillbilly Elegy? Sure, absolutely. So Hillbilly Elegy is a book that came out in June of 2016, written by J.D. Vance. And the subtitle for Hillbilly Elegy is important to keep in mind. He calls it a memoir of a family and a culture in crisis. And so in part, J.D. Vance is telling his own story about how he grew up um, with a mother who was um, an addict and the struggles with that, and then the ways that his connection to his grandparents, um, especially his mama, really were important to him. And he writes um, about his own experiences as a young man as he left the region and joined the Marines and eventually made his way to Yale Law School. Um, What's also going on in the book, though, is that he is talking not just about his own family, but he's talking about Appalachia in a very broad way. And Appalachia, for those listeners out there who might not know, is a 13-state region. So a really diverse and complex region um, along the eastern seaboard, um, the mountain range moving between Alabama and New York. Those 13 states are um, considered Appalachia by the Appalachian Regional Commission. And the reason that a lot of people took issue with J.D. Vance was not so much the way that he told his own story, but the way that he used his experience to make generalizations about a culture and said that it was a culture in crisis, and thus used the title Elegy to talk about this region. Okay, Meredith, so so let's sort of lay that groundwork. What is his argument about Appalachian culture? Can you kind of give us a three or four minute summary of of the argument that he's making? And what location is he talking about for our listeners? Where is he focusing on? Sure. So he is in Appalachian, Ohio, in Middletown, Ohio, and he has connections to parts of Kentucky. So he is, his argument is essentially that he grew up around poverty and drug addiction, and um, his explanation for the poverty and the, the addiction and the abuse that he saw around him is he's really pointing to the individuals themselves. And he makes this 
um, in my opinion, pretty sloppy sociological claim. It's not really sociological. It's this sloppy claim um, that the people of Appalachia are poor because they don't work hard, because they are somehow um, descended from a lot who who fights and blames and drinks too much. So he's playing into these stereotypes that have been um, that have been used in really dramatic and harmful ways since Appalachia was named a region in the first place. He's using those same stereotypes in order to justify that Appalachia is is this culture in crisis and that we really don't need to help the region. We can't help the region because people are poor um, due to their own laziness, their own actions, and there's no systemic reason going on. It's just a bunch of lazy people, and um, they kind of created this problem. They'll get themselves out of it. And so that's um, almost a direct quote there and uh, from from Vance, where he's talking about the, the problems in the region. So he's doing a really interesting um, positioning as, a, uh, as someone with connections to the region where he begins with first person singular. So he's saying, I experienced this, I grew up in this way. And then he shifts to first person plural and begins to say, we are stubborn, we are belligerent, we got ourselves into this mess and we can get ourselves out of it. And there's a real um, socio-political positioning that is happening when he does that. And he is, um, he's basically blaming the victim for their own poverty when he moves beyond his own experience um, and, and more just about people. Um, okay, Meredith, could you uh, tell our listeners, like, what time period does this involve? Uh, I mean, I mean, it was, yeah. it's with his life, I'm sure. But was he? Uh, how old was he? And and what are the years that he did this observation and lived to come up with his publication? Sure, I don't know exactly the years that he's covering, but I would say that today JD Vance is probably in his, I don't know, uh, forty years old or something. And so he's writing about his experience growing up in the '80s and the '90s, primarily. But what's really important in terms of um, timing is that he is, the book comes out in 2016 um, and is really connected to and becomes crucial as a way of understanding the presidential election that happens that year. And so were this simply a memoir of a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s, I think it, um, you know, people, who knows people, whether people would have read it or not it became really popular as a way to try to understand what happened in that presidential election in Appalachia, um, why the vote went to Trump. Uh, There was a lot of confusion about that. It didn't seem like a very logical alignment at the time. And um, Vance is giving a particular explanation for the the ways that that vote went. And so the, the book's publication in June of 2016 is is important. This was a book that was um, really pushed by um, Peter Thiel and um, Amy Chua, who were his advisors at Yale and the head of this conservative think tank. It's a very intentional positioning of Appalachia in this framework of the presidential election. 
Okay, Meredith, so the obvious thing then is to have you summarize what kind of response um, has has occurred in Appalachia and elsewhere uh, to this book's publication. I think, isn't there another book that gets published that is sort of a rebuttal of this? Am I remembering that correctly? Absolutely. So Elizabeth Cat had a book that came out called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, because part of what she saw was a real lack of understanding from a historical perspective, from a sociological perspective. So Cat herself is a historian, and she understands the history of the extractive industries in the region, the history of um, representation of the region and the, the complex ways that this works together to keep this culture. If it is in crisis, then there, there are these complicated reasons that it's a culture in crisis. And so Kat, I think, is, is working to complicate and, and to push against and, and to call out the simplistic explanation that Vance gives, which is to, to blame the victim for their own poverty. So Kat's book comes out um, shortly after Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and again, it's called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And then generally what, what began to happen in the region, you know, I think a lot of people who are Appalachian and people who study Appalachia were interested in, in hearing, you know, this, this bestseller that was out there that was, um, you know, using the word hillbilly and was a memoir. So I think a lot of people read it. And a lot of people were really frustrated, both with the shift that I mentioned, where he's uh, where he begins to generalize and um, and make this political move. But I think also a lot of people felt like he was doing something really sneaky. He was using his, um, you know, a lot of people said that his connections to Appalachia are, are tenuous at best, and that he doesn't really have the right to to position himself in that way. I happen to believe that that gatekeeping isn't very helpful. And um, I will, you know, if I had the, the power to, I would grant him the right to be able to call himself Appalachian. But um, a lot of people felt like he was, he was playing a role. He was, you know, just kind of um, laying it on pretty heavy in order to position himself as a certain kind of person for his own political gain. And his work was sloppy. Like I said, it wasn't um, it wasn't grounded in an accurate history. And this is a field of study that's been established for you know, many decades, Appalachian studies. And so a lot of Appalachian studies scholars and historians especially took issue with the way that he wrote, the way that he portrayed the region as monolithic and wrote their own retorts. And often told their own stories, and some of them had a lot of overlap with Vance. You know, maybe they had um, uncles that were similar to him, or a grandmother that reminded them of the the mammoth figure in the in the book. But they really, most people took issue with the way that he sort of uses the figures in order to position himself as the hero who got up and out and was able to escape this terrible place. So right. from those, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are, we have a lot more to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
the KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Meredith McCarroll, Director of Writing and Rhetoric at Bowden College. And we're talking about Appalachian Reckoning a region responds to the hillbilly elegy. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off? As somebody who lived a life in extractive industry, thank you, Ed. <laughs> <laughs> Meredith, uh, uh, by the way, a footnote, uh, uh, Elizabeth Cat is uh, uh, the one who recommended uh, you to come aboard and talk with us about your book. Um, Oh, that's great. Yeah, she's a wonderful person. The The question I have to start off with is, uh, what's the local response of the the people in these, uh, uh, these, in these 14 or, or rather 13 states? You know, 13 states, yeah. What's the reaction been to, uh, to uh, your book, well, to our book, I feel like, you know, I guess I'm only seeing the people who show up at our readings and who buy our book. <laughs> That's so, a good sign. Uh, yeah. So, I've, you know, I've heard I've heard a lot of support. And truthfully, I've heard I've heard very little criticism of our book. And I think that is because our book. So along with Tony Harkins, I co-edited this collection, Appalachian Reckoning. A region responds to hillbilly elegy, and we have nearly 40 voices. We have photographs, poetry, narratives, um, scholarship. It's a really intentionally diverse and eclectic collection, and so it's hard to take issue with our approach. I think we are not. Our aim isn't to be um, isn't to shut down J.D. Vance or to try to contradict him that happens throughout the book from some reader, some writers, but I think more importantly, we just wanted to create a chorus of voices rather than just have one person who kind of kept stepping up to the mic to speak for the region. So when you have, when you do that authentically, you gather together voices that are not always in agreement, that are really uh, different in nuanced ways and so it's it's difficult to talk about what our book is in that way, and therefore maybe a little bit difficult to criticize because there is no one perspective that we are putting forward in Appalachian Reckoning, if that makes sense. Okay, Ed. Thanks, Jay. Um, Meredith, I just reread Hillbilly Elegy this week. Um, and one of the things in there that struck me uh, when you use the word monolithic is how he avoids uh, the issue of race. I think blacks are only mentioned in there once or twice in the entire book. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about mm -hmm. that, please? 
Sure. I think that too often Appalachia has been misunderstood as a white region. And actually, my, my first book is called Unwhite Appalachia Race and Film that is really looking at the reasons that people want to see Appalachia as as white in this particular way. Um, so I think that, you know, if if, again, Vance were only telling his own story and it was a, a white story, then I think that that is okay. Again, it's when he is speaking more generally on behalf of the region. I think once you start to do that, you have to pay more attention. You have to, you have to notice that there's more diversity in lots of different ways, including race. And there's always been racial diversity in, in Appalachia. And it has been ignored for some complicated reasons. So one of the things that we were excited about in, in Appalachian Reckoning is that we do have diverse voices. We have um, you know, the, the voices that are politically diverse, racially diverse, um, in terms of you know, queerness and uh, political perspective. So I think that his, yeah, that monolithic white portrayal of Appalachia you might forgive, but it is. In, I think that it's intentionally painting a certain story, a certain image of the region that just ignores a whole lot of people that live in the region. Um, along with this, Meredith, uh, I came across a story um, a couple months ago that was saying that one of the reasons that the standard of living in many of the poor regions in Appalachia was rising was because Obamacare was providing money to the hospitals and to the people in those regions that they could actually, well, in the past times, the very poor wouldn't go, that in the last five, six, eight years that they could go to the hospitals, get the care they need, and there was a definitely a documented improvement. And then back to your talk about your, um, the election afterwards of 16 with President Trump, when he was trying to rip that away, there were many regions in the Appalachia was saying, don't do that because this is something that we've never had before like this. It's been working. So the reason I bring this out is doesn't that kind of evidence kind of defy what um, the, you know, the gentleman's book is all about that it, it's their fault and, it's, it, and they don't need any help because it's their, it's their problem? Yeah, I think that's, for anyone who's ever studied economics and history, that's, that's never valid. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit, we have a, a piece in, in the book that uses the term, that compares this to the Moynihan Report, um, that looks, of course, at African-American families and is another example of blaming the victim there. So I think that any simplistic answer to um, a, to a regional poverty is bound to be false if it's that simple. Um, I think that the answers around uh, historical economic oppression is, is ne- I think that those are never simple answers. And so the fact that he is giving a simple answer, I think is a red flag for a lot of people. And the fact that he's blaming the people themselves for their own poverty is, you know, I you 
I sometimes want to just think, oh, he didn't get what he was doing, but I'm afraid he did get what he was doing because that is a particular political move that that one might make to justify the removal of certain governmental systems, like you're talking about with the Obamacare, to say that it's not really needed. And um, and in fact, I would I would argue that those systems do work in most places and, and certainly would work in Appalachia. And Vance is not, he's not going in in a, in a um, he's not really analytical in his, his book. He, his, the fact that he keeps one foot in that memoir position is sort of what allows him to make these uh, statements without much analysis or support. But he, he is saying that, um, that, this help isn't needed because people wouldn't take advantage of it anyway, um, which I think, as you're saying, isn't accurate. Meredith, uh, my my interest is, so Vance argues that Appalachian culture is a culture in crisis. Um, it, it seems fairly obvious that, that that's probably not correct. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about what the strengths of Appalachian culture is? Because I'm not sure people maybe know what those are. And then uh, what areas did, did he get right? What, what are the, the weaknesses or the places where the culture isn't quite uh, doing what it could? Sure. Well, I mean, he, he is, <laughs> doesn't take a weatherman to look around and see the weather, right? And there's a way for sure that, anyone who's paying attention sees that in um, in places with deep poverty and particularly I think in play in rural places with poverty those the white rural poverty and the opioid crisis are going hand in hand these days and so this is not just in Appalachia but it certainly includes Appalachia and so absolutely there are crises, this is a crisis that's happening, and it's a crisis that is born of poverty, is my understanding of it. I'm a literary and cinema studies person, so I don't want to speak too much out of turn, but my understanding is that, you know, this is really about an economic crisis, and when there is depravity, when there's hopelessness that follows the loss of jobs, um, that's, that's part of what can lead to an opioid crisis like we have um, across the country. So, you know, Vance talks about his mother's own addiction, uh, which I have no reason to doubt, and which I regret so much for for him and his entire family. So his truth there, I think, is part of what made um, his advisors think, oh, this is, this is a good story. You've got a good position here. Um, and so his, what he gets right, I think, is his view on his own experience, um, his position on the way that addiction, you know, is such a challenge for families and the ways that that passes on um, so many challenges, poverty and um, distrust, difficult familial relationships. I think that he probably gets that right. And certainly it, it can be useful and people have usefully drawn attention to the poverty and the opioid crisis that is affecting places, including Appalachia. 
Um, so I'll start with that to say that, you know, there's certainly work that needs to be done um, around around this issue. What I think people maybe don't understand about Appalachia, if they haven't, you know, paid attention or if they're only reading the mainstream media or seeing the same coverage that seems to happen over and over in Appalachia, is that, for one thing, it's difficult to say what Appalachia is because, again, it's the 13-state region with a lot of diversity in terms of, you know, it's rural and urban, it's racially diverse, there's economic diversity, there is geographic diversity. So there's um, there are places, I grew up near Asheville, North Carolina, in a small town, Waynesville, North Carolina, that is, you know, that is a, a booming, healthy economy that's in, at the heart of the Smoky Mountains, and it's, um, it's a beautiful place where, yes, there is poverty, but it's not, it's not the picture that most people have in mind if they think of Appalachia. What most people have in mind when they think of Appalachia is uh, this certain kind of run-down place, empty buildings, um, broken-down barns. And that's exactly the image, by the way, that Vance puts on the cover of his book because that's the Appalachia that he's invested in portraying. But what he doesn't show is the diversity, like I said, that there are these economically successful places. There are cities in Appalachia that are doing well. But even in the places that have been struggling, where there is poverty and has been poverty, there has always been a fierce activism and there has always been pushback. So I think of places like Apple Shop, um, which is an organization that was founded in reaction to the negative portrayals following the war on poverty, um, these same stories were told of the region that were literally showing the same people over and over in these um, depraved situations. And Apple Shop was formed to teach people how to make their own films and tell their own stories because it's always been wrong. It's always been more complex than that. And Apple Shop is still thriving. So, the, you know, there are media collectives like that. I think of places like the Highlander Center um, outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, that has been around since the 1960s as a center uh, to organize for social justice. Um, it's, a place that, it's a place that Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks met and worked together, and it has this incredible history. That's not what comes to mind for most people when they think about Appalachia, that progressive um, organizing that has that is a key part of the region's history all right it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show and really we're just going to extend what you've already been talking about so meredith why do you think knowing about appalachian culture is relevant in today's world well i think that it's important to know about appalachian culture because Appalachia is a huge part culturally of American culture. Um, so for anyone who is, who cares about the history of America, as I imagine many of your listeners do, um, there's so much that can be understood in a more complex way when you understand the history of the region. But even moving beyond history, I think in order to see our country accurately, it calls us to pay close attention, to read multiple voices, 
to read against the grain and to work for a complex understanding of any place, um, including Appalachia. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 421st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And my name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Meredith McCarroll, Director of Writing and Rhetoric at Bowdoin College, who talked to us about Appalachian Reckoning, a region response to Hillbilly Elegy. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.